What a blessing it is to be here at Calvary Church. I bring you greetings from Tabernacle Community Church, and I'm grateful for uh, joining Tom in this series. Uh, It's a blessing to be here, and to all the moms, happy Mother's Day. God's blessing on you today. The word priest, for some, may conjure up a number of images, thoughts, maybe even memories and emotions, depending upon what your educational background or religious background is. In the Old Testament, the priest served as the bridge between people and God through offering prayers of sacrifices, prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the people. He was to serve as the mediator between the holy God and the unrighteous, sinful people. Whereas the prophet spoke on behalf of God to the people, the priest represented the people before God. The biblical notion of someone who is one of us goes to God on our behalf to deal with the problem of sin was the work of the priest. Scripture reveals that you and I are descendants of Adam. We have been born in sin and shaped in iniquity. The text says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, in order to qualify for the priesthood, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. It was challenging for some of the Jewish followers to see Jesus as priest because Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was, in fact, from the tribe of Judah. The book of Hebrews was written primarily to these Jewish followers who needed to understand why Jesus was the Messiah, that he indeed was worth following, and that he was, in fact, the ultimate priest. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, The writer mentions the name of the first official priest recorded in all of Scripture. A priest by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He was the king of a place called Salem, which was later changed to the name of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Salem, is the city of peace. So the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews introduces us to this guy named Melchizedek, who is the first priest that's spoken of in Scripture. His name means king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. So both his name as king of righteousness and king of peace should give us a clue about this man called Melchizedek. 
Abraham confirms that he is a priest by giving a tithe to Melchizedek. So here we see someone who is both priest and king. He is both priest and king. His name means righteousness, and this is established even before the priesthood of Aaron and the priest, the, the, the Levitical order. So Melchizedek is spoken of, and he's found in Genesis chapter 14. He comes from out of nowhere. There is the discussion that uh, Abraham has gone on a rescue mission for his nephew Lot. And they've conquered five kings. And as Abraham approaches, there's this guy. He has no genealogy. There's no discussion about what his lineage is. He just kind of comes on the scene. His name is Melchizedek, and he's a priest. Abraham approaches him, and there's a discussion. As Genesis chapter 14 will be on the screen for your reading. It says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Here in giving of the tenth, Abram confirms that Melchizedek is a priest. He is a priest of God. Melchizedek is only spoken of in one other place in, in all of the Old Testament. And it's found in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, David declares, in the beginning of that psalm, David declares that, that this one, this, this prophetic word regarding the Messiah, that this one would in fact, in verse 1 of 110, this one in fact will be seated at the right hand of God. Now, let me help you understand something. When a priest is seated, that means that his work has been completed. And so here, what David is declaring to us, that this one, this, this Messiah, this one that will come, will be seated at the right hand of God. Later, he goes and declares in verse 4, that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's that name. This is a messianic prophecy that is declared in the time of David. The writer of Hebrew goes back and draws from Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 and begins to lay out a clear argument as to why you and I can follow Jesus Christ, as to why we can trust him as priest, and as to why we can surrender our lives and follow him forever. Amen? Amen. Chapter 7 is written in a persuasive literary style where he talks about Melchizedek, the Levitical priest, and Jesus, the great high priest. 
with a goal of you and I understanding why it is worth following Jesus. Why Jesus is worth following and why we need him. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and I'll read from verse 20 to 24. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he, I'll give you a moment. I hear pages turning. <laughs> Hebrews 7, verse 20. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. As I'm in your notes today, the first thought that I want to share with you this morning is that Jesus is worth following because his priesthood is permanent. Jesus is worth following because his priesthood is permanent. Amen, amen. We ought to praise God for the permanent priesthood of Jesus Christ, amen? Here the author of Hebrews is saying to you and I, weigh the options, weigh the options. You have dead corpses in comparison to the indestructible life of Jesus Christ. He says, which is better? He, he tells us and he challenges us to weigh the option as the author helps us to understand and takes us back to the idea that the priesthood of Aaron, the Levitical order, was intended to be a temporary priesthood. It was never God's plan and intention for it to be an eternal priesthood or a permanent priesthood. It was designed, it was created, it was established to be temporary. A priest would come in, they would fulfill their duty, they would die, and then another priest would come in. Even in Numbers chapter 20, God explains to the people of Israel that Aaron is, is, the, is the priest and he establishes the Levitical order. But God takes Aaron and Moses and Aaron's son and they go up on a mountain. And as they travel up that mountain, 
they, they, they go before the people of God, and it's a very public ceremony that Aaron goes up to the mountain. He is disrobed. His garments, his priestly garment is then placed on his son, and then Aaron dies. It was a clear communication to the people of God that the priesthood of Aaron was temporary, and the writer of Hebrews reminds us of that and helps us to understand that although the, the priesthood of Aaron is temporary, the priesthood of Jesus is far better because it's a permanent priesthood. Now God, how here God says that Jesus' priesthood would never come to an end, that the promise of permanence is a promise that comes from God. It's an oath that God made. God never established the other priesthood, the Levitical order. He never intended for it to be permanent. It was temporary. The text tells us in Hebrews 7 that Jesus is the guarantor, that Jesus is the one who secures the reality of his priesthood, that, that his priesthood is permanent and that it will continue without end. Well, what's the implication of this? The implication is that you can always be sure that Jesus as priest will always be by your side. You can always be sure that no matter how difficult life becomes, that God, that Jesus will never abandon you. You can always be sure in the good times and in the most difficult of times that Jesus will be there right with you, walking through the journey of life as your priest. Guess what? He even continues today right now, standing by you and with you and on your behalf. So not only, not only is Jesus' priesthood permanent, but the text reveals to us that Jesus' priesthood is powerful. Point number two, point number two, as we read in the passage, verse 25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is worth following because his priesthood is powerful. Can you say the word powerful? His priesthood is powerful. So go with me. Go with me as I think about the life of Jesus. Go with me to, to the, the Matthew chapter 9 as you think about, and it's probably a familiar passage of Scripture, uh, Jesus is, is teaching the crowds. He's, he's in a home, and there's crowds coming and following him as Jesus began to teach the word he taught as one with authority. And Matthew reminds us time and time again just the profound authority that Jesus has. So as Jesus is in this home, there are four friends who grab, grab a friend of theirs and they are determined to bring their friend before Jesus. 
He's a paralytic. He's, he's a man in need of healing. And these four friends decide that they're going to tear off the roof because there's no way to get Jesus. And they're going to lower their friend down into the very presence of Jesus because one of the things that they realize is that this guy is powerful that this guy is able to change circumstances. So they lower him down in the presence of Christ. And what does Jesus do? Jesus forgives the man of his sins. Jesus declares, your sins have been forgiven. So the teachers of the law hear this, and they say that this man is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sin. Well, well, God forgave sins. Jesus, in that moment, forgives the man. And then the question becomes, does it make more sense or, or would, would I have displayed greater power if I said to this man, get up and walk? Or is there a question about telling him that he's forgiven of his sins? So what Jesus does is Jesus confirms, Jesus confirms his authority to forgive sin by healing the man. He tells him to take up your mat and walk, and the man does exactly what Jesus says. And in that moment, Jesus declares just how powerful he is. Jesus declares his authority to forgive sin. Well, Matthew does a great thing because in verses 1 through 8, he captures this story. But in verses 9 through 13, Matthew goes a little further and he declares to you and I just how great and how powerful God is and the depth in which his authority to forgive goes. So here's what he does. In verses 9 through 13, Matthew begins to tell how Jesus came to his house, how Jesus called him, Matthew, a tax collector, to follow Jesus. Matthew, a tax collector, a sinner, a, a, a criminal, one who was an enemy of Israel, how God was willing to have dinner, to enjoy table fellowship with all of these sinners and tax collectors and publicans. So here Matthew shows us that not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive sin, but the depth to which he is willing to go in order to forgive. One songwriter said it this way, that he will save from the guttermost to the uttermost. The text says that Jesus saves completely. He saves completely. The salvation that you and I enjoy because Jesus is our priest and he's a priest who is powerful is, 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 is both past, present, and future. In the past, at the cross, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ saved us from the penalty of sin. It was at the cross that Jesus Christ saved us from the penalty of sin, and it was in that moment that a great transaction occurred. We were forgiven for our sins as Jesus bled and died on our behalf. It was in that moment that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And because he took on our sin, 
this great transaction occurred where he took on our sin and we took on his righteousness. There was this exchange that occurred. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that you and I be, can become the righteousness of God. And so in the past, as Jesus saved us, he, he saved us and this transaction occurred. And in that moment when Jesus gave us or took on our sins, Jesus opened up the possibility for us to receive radical forgiveness. And see, we deal with this thing called guilt. Anybody ever dealt with guilt? We deal with this thing called guilt. And in that moment, in that moment when Jesus took upon our sin, when he took upon our sin and opened the way for radical forgiveness, he opened the door for guilt to be dealt with. That we don't have to carry around guilt because of the radical forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Not only was guilt dealt with, but in that exchange when we took on the righteousness of God, when we took on the righteousness of God in, in salvation's past, in that moment, God opened the door for radical acceptance. That we don't have to worry about the shame that we so often deal with, the shame that we also so often walk in in our lives. Well, Jesus has given us his righteousness. There is a radical acceptance. You are a beloved son and daughter of God. You have been accepted by the Father. You can walk in the liberty and the joy that comes in knowing that you now are the righteousness of God. Amen. So do you allow your status as the one who was forgiven and accepted to guide your life, you are valued and loved by God. That really should be the direction of your life, the posture of your living. The passage says that, that he has saved us completely and in the present, in the present, not only has he saved us in the past, but he is saving us even right now in the present. Our salvation is past and present. And in this moment, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. And what that means is that he is before the throne of God and he is praying on your behalf. Now, now, now your ability, your ability to walk in the power of what it means to be in relationship with God has greatly to do with how you understand the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. If you only understand intercession, if you only understand the ministry of intercession on Jesus's, in, in terms of what Jesus is doing, as a prayer of mercy, then it's going to be depressing. God have mercy on Artie. He messed up again. God have mercy on your child. They've messed up again. 
If your understanding of the ministry of intercession is sorely based on Jesus crying out for God to have mercy on you, it really can become depressing. So how about this? Not only is his ministry a ministry of mercy, prayer of mercy, but it's a prayer of justice. God, give them exactly what they deserve. That sounds scary, doesn't it? That sounds scary, doesn't it? God, give them exactly what they deserve. But, but here is what Jesus is, is saying when he asks for God to give you exactly what you deserve. He's saying not based on their record, but based on my record. Based on my righteousness, God give them exactly what they deserve. They are accepted and beloved by God. They are a dearly loved daughter and son of God. They are my beloved. And so God released to them all that they deserve. His priesthood is powerful. Not only does it take care of the past and the present, but the text tells us that, that our salvation is a future salvation. We are, we are being saved, and we are going to be completely saved from the presence of sin. We've been saved from the power of sin and its penalty, and one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more heartache, no more struggle, no more brokenness. Did you know that God is in a restoration program and as God restores all things, he's restoring you as well. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that I understand that his restoration project is not to make me an angel, but his restoration project is to make me truly human. Sin has destroyed our ability to be fully human, to be what it means to be fully human. Stop making excuses. Oh, I'm only human. To be fully human is to be like Jesus. And so God in his restoration process is making us more like Jesus and ultimately one day all sin will be gone. Death will be cast into the lake and you and I will live for all of eternity on the new heaven and the new earth with our Savior. Because Jesus' priesthood is powerful. You are not alone. You don't have to walk in the dark by yourself. You can go to this priest who is praying on your behalf and appropriate what he's made available to you. He will never leave you nor forsake you, and he has the power to rescue you from sin, to offer forgiveness for your guilt, and to remove the shame because you've been accepted by him. The text says here, as I conclude in verses 26 
through 28. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. The text says here, the text says here that not only is Jesus' priesthood permanent and powerful, but his priesthood is perfect. It is perfect. The Levitical priests were, sin- were sinners, just like you and I. And, and every time they went before God, they had to offer a sacrifice on their own behalf. They had to offer a sacrifice. And they were not able to go into the very presence of God. They were not able to to enjoy what it means to, to be in God's presence. And their sacrifice would only cover our sins. But Jesus, our high priest, the one who is powerful and permanent and perfect, His sacrifice gave us direct access to the Father. His sacrifice allows us now to come into the place where God is and to have a seat in our daddy's lap. Because he was perfect. Unlike the the priest of the past, he had no sin to deal with. He was like us, and yet he was without sin. Perfect. The text says that he was blameless. The text says that he was holy, separated for service to God and in character, that he was harmless, his holiness pointing to his relationship with God and harmless pointing to his relationship with other humanity. He was undefiled, free from blemish, without stain and without sin. He didn't share in our sin nature. He was set apart from sinners. He was both perfect priest and perfect sacrifice. He was both the forgiver and the victim. He was the forgiving victim. And the benefit of following him is that he's not just another man. He is the eternal word of God that was made flesh, who's not a guilty sinner, but he's one who is willing and able to come and purify us from our guilt. The big idea this morning is that Jesus is worth following because his priesthood is permanent, powerful, and perfect. You can trust him. Follow him today.